I woke up this morning at uh, 4 o'clock to the sound of babies crying, baby puppies. My wife decided to wake me up and let me know that we now have new nine new members of our household, all those little golden retriever worms, you know, they're about that big. So, <laughs> yeah, you say awe. Be saying awe for me because I'm light on sleep this morning, so um, pray for me. We have, a, <laughs> we have a great passage before us this morning that I look forward to going through with you. So let's take a minute and pray and ask God to be with us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, our hearts are prepared, and we have uh, presented our bodies here before you. Uh, we ask that you would help our minds to be fully present. We've engaged with song, with your church singing together, and with the saints in eternity, and we lift up worship before you because we know that you're worthy. And we've declared that, and we thank you for what you did for us. Now, Father, we're, we're prone to have minds that wander, to see things that take place outside the windows, to think of things undone at home, to look at text messages. All kinds of things can distract us, Father. God, what I ask for us right now is that you would help us to be fully present in the moment. Because we've taken this time and set it aside, we ask that you would bless it and that you would use it and that you would speak to each person here individually. God, I believe you have something you want to say to every individual who's in this auditorium. So I ask that you would do that through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would fill and invade this auditorium. Teach us. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that where we left off in the study of John so far, that when Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, as we saw last week, that it caused people to have two reactions. Some individuals decided, yeah, I'm all in. I totally get it. I'm with this guy. I see who he is. Others decided, I think I'm going to check out at this point. I'm rejecting him. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 45 and 46, where we left off last week. Because Jesus always has that kind of reaction with people, individuals have to decide what to do with Him because He brings division. Look with me up on the screen at Luke 12.51. This is Jesus speaking. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Kind of messes with the whole Christmas card industry, doesn't it? You know, you got a lot of those cards in the mail. May there be peace on earth. Well, that will happen in the future when Jesus returns as king to rule over the earth. But not right now, because when you just bring up the name Jesus at work or in your family circle, you know that it brings division. Merely the name of Jesus compels people to make a decision. You either have to acknowledge him as truth or reject him. There's only two possible options. Here's the two options. John 3.36, Jesus' words again. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Kind of a scary thought. Individuals who have not aligned themselves with Christ, that God's wrath abides on them still because they haven't been forgiven, they haven't sought Christ out. See, there's no third No third, neutral position. You can't be on the fence. You're either for Him or against Him. Jesus said that Himself, Luke 11, 23. He who is not with me is against me. 
With Jesus, there's no gray area. You're either all in or you're not. Now, as we discovered in the text last week, there was this undercurrent of plans to eliminate Jesus. It hadn't become public yet. But the rulers in Israel were looking to kill Him, to do away with Him, but it was subterranean. However, now as a result of what we saw last week, they got this dead guy walking around. And now they got to do something with him too. So not only is Jesus on their hands, they've got Lazarus to deal with. And that complicates the situation even further because many Jews are believing in Jesus now as a result of Lazarus' resurrection. Because his resurrection is indisputable. that Lazarus' resurrection is indisputable. Some decide to go with Jesus and others run off to tattle and they go to the rulers of Israel. So the forces now are for and against, are crystallizing. Jesus understands that. The leaders are alarmed and they're alarmed to the degree that this is the most astonishing miracle yet. They can't dispute it. What are they going to do with the evidence? And they understand the public effect of it. So the Pharisees are electrified into action. However, they can't act on their own because they're part of a ruling party called the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees who are part of the Sanhedrin rule alongside the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are the majority party. And these two have to work together. They will not work on their own. So they decide they're going to convene a council. They're going to bring the high council together. If you pull out your notes this morning that you have, you'll see that I put in there a comparison for you to help you understand. Maybe you've never understood these phrases, Pharisees and Sadducees. It's not going to be up on the screen. It's only in your bulletins this morning in that white insert note. I want to help you distinguish the difference between a Pharisee and Sadducee. First of all, when you look up on the screen here, what you see are the chambers where they met. And this chamber sat outside of the temple in the temple courtyard. It was a a courtroom setting made up of 35 Pharisees and 35 Sadducees. Here's the comparison if you look in your notes. First of all, the Pharisees, they devoted themselves to the complete Old Testament, meaning from Genesis all the way to Malachi. They accepted all of it and the human traditions that had been passed on down through the word of mouth. However, the Sadducees accepted only the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books. The Pharisees, primarily from the middle class. The Sadducees, they're from the wealthy aristocrat ruling class. The Pharisees, they're ultra-nationalist, and they hate the yoke of Rome. However, the Sadducees, they're compromising, and they're politically minded. They're always taking opportunity to advance their cause. The Pharisees, they affirm the resurrection. They believe in angels. The Sadducees rejected the belief that there were angels. They reject the belief there's a resurrection of the dead. That's why they're sad, you see. Ha <laughs> ha. That's a really old one, okay? But some of you were expecting it to come at that point. Some of you didn't get it. Maybe your neighbor will explain it to you. So despite the differences, they have one mutual cause. They hate Jesus. And that's what drives them. So as we step into the text this morning, 
you'll see in John eleven forty seven that they're convening a high council. It's this image like you see on the screen in which the Sanhedrin, it's the supreme court of the land, is going to meet together to try and decide what do we do. And that's the question that's on the agenda. So go with me in your Bibles if you have them with you this morning or grab them out of the pew rack in front of you. You'll also see it on the screen, John eleven forty seven. This is a meeting of the supreme court. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Uh, just a kind of a side note, that Jesus' most bitter enemies don't reject the miracle of Lazarus being resurrected is confirming proof of its authenticity. Understand the Word of God is the Word of God, but it's also a historical document. The things that are written in here are the things that actually happened. And this recording here of these individuals who are meeting in the Supreme Court, these are the actual words they exchanged with each, with each other. They're not denying that Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. They're saying, now what do we do? What's going to happen if he keeps going on like this? But they also understood that Pilate, who is a Roman that's been put in power, has a capacity for ruthlessness. And Rome will not tolerate any form of insubordination. And so these individuals are caught between a rock and a hard place and they don't know what to do because they have a complete misunderstanding of who Jesus is and why He's there. They think He's there for political reasons. And they determine that because He's there for political reasons, He has the ambition to become king. Even though He's already shown us, as we looked at John earlier, Jesus didn't want to become king on earth He's king of the whole earth, not just of Israel. That's what they misunderstood. Go forward with me now to verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, what do we know about Caiaphas? You want to get familiar with his name because as this text continues to unfold, you'll hear his name quite a bit. Caiaphas is an individual who was put in the place of supreme leader, high priest he's called. Now theoretically, a high priest was priest for life, meaning the ruler over the Sanhedrin. However, Rome had turned it into a political position. And when they found a high priest that they didn't like, they deposed them and removed them. So Caiaphas has come into power somewhere around A.D. 15, and he remains in power until A.D. 36, three years after Jesus dies. He's got a very powerful father-in-law. His father-in-law's name is Annas, A-N-N-A-S. He was the previous high priest. So when you see Jesus go on trial before Annas, the chief priest, and Caiaphas, the high priest, you understand the connection. Father-in-law, son-in-law, both former high priests with a lot of political ambition, both Sadducees oriented towards helping Rome accomplishes Rome's purposes. So that's the setting, and he speaks to them in a very rude form. So his opening statement, you know nothing at all, is not intended to make friends. Because the Sadducees really looked down on people. They're part of the ruling class. It's typical of his behavior. Let me show you a quote up on the screen from a first century historian. His name is Josephus, and this is what he said about the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees. 
The behavior of the Sadducees one toward another is in some degree wild, and their conduct with those who are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. Caiaphas is frustrated by the indecision. People aren't coming up with a proposal, so he comes up with one, and it's a ruthless solution. It's in keeping with his character. Let's kill him. I propose death. It's expedient for one man to die. Then the whole nation to be destroyed, Rome will take away our nation. So he presents them with an either-or dilemma. Either Jesus dies or our nation perishes. Go forward with me now to verse 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. We get a really impressive footnote. Notice that what's being said there is John's commentary. He stopped the story and he inserted this right here to help us understand that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God used the words of a wicked man to bring about prophecy. Why did God want us to know that? That comment right there could have been lost to history, but God wanted you to know that. Meaning that a wicked man in a political position, in high power, ruling over the nation, even he can be used of God. And God is saying, I'll take his words. He didn't say this on his own. Those words are going to be transformed into truth. Jesus is going to die for the entire world. Caiaphas didn't even know what he was saying. Now notice at the end of verse 53, they've already arrived at the conclusion they're going to kill him. Remember, this is six days before the trial. Jesus hasn't even gone on trial yet. So we understand the trial that's going to take place is a mock trial. Sentence has already been passed. They've already arrived at their conclusion. So opposition has reached a point of no return. They cannot go back. The high council has now issued a warrant for his arrest. This is all background to understanding this story that's coming up. Go with me to verse 54 now. Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Now this issue of ceremonial cleansing, the purification that's being referred to here, it took a long time, the process that they went through. It took a considerable length of time because of the size of the crowd. We're told according to some of the first century historians that as many as a million and a half people swelled into Jerusalem during this period of time. Remember, Jerusalem at this time is only a city of about 300,000 people. So they increased by a million to a million two people People packing into the city, and they're all trying to get into the temple to go through the ceremonial cleansing process. They've got a lot of time on their hands, so while they're hanging around, what's the topic of conversation? You don't really think he's going to show up, do you? I mean, his wanted posters are all over the place. You don't actually think he'll come into the capital city. What do you think? Is that going to happen? That's the background now to verse 1 of chapter 12. Move forward with me. Jesus, therefore, 
And the therefore is, because of all these things that you know now, Jesus therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now because so many people had to go through the purification process, they would arrive not only before Passover, they would arrive six or seven days before. Jesus probably came into Bethany on either a Friday or a Sunday. He would never arrive on Saturday because that's Shabbat, Sabbath. And people couldn't walk long distances on Sabbath. So either on Friday or Sunday, Jesus shows up. So apparently, he came into Bethany, as we saw last week, raised Lazarus from the dead, then left Bethany, went back to Ephraim, and then came back into Bethany. What do we know about Bethany? It's a suburb. It's a small bedroom community to the capital city of Jerusalem, just two miles away from downtown. What's he doing in Bethany? Because there's wanted posters all over. People are looking for him. He's attending a party, a celebration. How do I know that? Well, if you look at this exact same story that we're about to look at in the book of Mark and in the book of Matthew, you get additional detail. Look at me up on the screen. Mark 14.3 has this piece of information for us. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. So the party is for Jesus. It's a celebration. And he's reclining at the table. Well, where's he at? Who's home? We're going to think Bethany, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. Probably Mary and Martha. Probably at their house. Nope, that's not where he's at. We can find in a parallel passage again. Up on the screen, you'll see this. Mark 14, 3. They're in the home of Simon the leper. Now, where do you learn about Simon the leper? Later today, I challenge you to go read Luke chapter 5, and you're going to see this story. Jesus is teaching a message on the Mount of Olives. He comes down the side of the mountain, and he gets down to the base of the mountain, and there's a guy who's covered with leprosy. And the leper says to Jesus, Master, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out, touches him, and his leprosy evaporates. That's Simon the leper. He's throwing a party for Jesus. Now the Sanhedrin, they've issued a decree. You know where Jesus is at. You better turn him in. So what does Simon the leper do? He throws a party for Jesus. He's that bold because Jesus has made such a change in his life. Well, who else is there? The disciples, for sure. Martha and Mary. Lazarus, for sure. Simon's family. And you'll see in verse 9, a huge crowd gathered. There's the million of people in Jerusalem. They decide, hey, we've got time. Let's go see the dead guy and Jesus. So they book out of Jerusalem and they head up to Bethany. There's a large crowd. And Jesus is at this party. And I'm sure he's laughing. Can you picture God at a party with his friends? Just hanging out. Telling jokes about Peter. Because he's always the subject of jokes. That's what's going on in this setting. And the word that's used here in the Greek language is depnon for supper, the celebration that's thrown. And it means it's an extended celebration. It's the whole evening. It's a picture of people with just leisurely conversation. Lots of time to hang out. Now, typically in the first century, there was a, a U-shaped table, a very large table, picture like a horseshoe. 
And the center of it was open so that the servers could bring plates of food out, walk up through the center of table, and put food down in front of the individuals without interrupting their conversation or causing any disruption to the meal. So these individuals are laying with their face to the table on cushions, their feet pointing away from the table. And in that setting, we walk into this story with Lazarus reclining with Jesus at this U-shaped table Food is piled high. This is a celebration. And no one could expect what Mary is about to do. No one saw it coming. Go with me to verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Jesus is reclining at the table. His feet are pointing away. And Mary sneaks up behind him. Mark 14 tells us that she's carrying an alabaster jar. Now this alabaster jar is significant in itself, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But let me tell you that this perfume that she's carrying, which we're told is pure nard, is very significant, is more incredibly expensive than anything you could purchase today. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Here's the process by which it's made and the reason that we're told it's pure nard because there were diluted versions. The pure nard was incredibly expensive and it was harvested in the Himalayan mountains, meaning that an individual who lived in northern India on the border between there and Tibet had to climb the Himalayan mountains to an altitude where the spikenard plant grows. It's a very rare plant. They would harvest the plant, bring it all the way back down the mountainside, and begin stripping the oils out of the roots of the plant. And it took a long, long time, drop after drop after drop, to get as much as what we're talking about here. And it was incredibly fragrant. And so this nard was packed in a sealed alabaster flask. And the alabaster flask itself was so ornately and intricately carved that the vase itself was worth a fortune, let alone the contents that are inside it. Now picture this. Martha, we're told according to the passage, is busy serving. She's working in the kitchen doing what Martha does. If she had seen Mary carrying that alabaster vase, she would have known what's coming. Lazarus is at the table. He's laughing, and I'm sure his eyes go wide when he looks up and he sees his sister with the alabaster vase, something that's incredibly expensive and precious to their family. Lazarus, with his head back at the table, looks forward, and we're told Mary does something very specific. Look with me on the screen at Mark 14.3. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, we saw in John that she poured the perfume on his feet. Is there a contradiction going on there? I'll explain that in just a minute. But she broke the jar. Let's focus on that first. These alabaster vases had a very long, slender neck to them, and they had a cap. The cap could be taken off so that an individual could pour out just a drop or two because the fragrance lasted a long time from just a drop or two. She broke the neck off the jar and dumped it all out on Jesus. Why do that? Because she's not holding anything back. She's not refusing anything to the king. And she's made a determination, I'm going to give it all. 
Some of it is not good enough. I want him to have it all. So she poured the remainder on his feet. Look with me on the screen again at verse 3. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Greek word that's used there, ekeo, means it gushed out on Jesus. Soaked his hair, soaked his clothing, and his body. Now let's talk about this perfume for a minute so you understand what's going on here. It was very customary in the first century for a young woman to have a dowry to take into her marriage with her. Typically, it was passed on to her at age 14 or 15 or 16 because they married at a very young age, passed on to her by her father, something that was held in trust so that she would have resources to start out within her marriage. Now, we're never told anything about the parents of these individuals, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So we have to assume that they passed on at this point. These three brother and sisters are living together. This vial of perfume is treated like a trust account, like a mutual fund. Her dad gave this to her, something incredibly valuable to keep and to hold. How do I know that? Typically, ointments of this nature were frequently used as investments in the first century. They occupied a very small space in the family home. They could be kept in a cupboard out of the way of prowling eyes, something that could be carried into the marketplace, and it was easily negotiable. A pound of pure nard has a present-day market value of $27,000. Have you ever in your life seen a $27,000 bottle of perfume. I haven't. I go to Walmart to get my stuff. $27,000, and she empties out her 401K. Now, what's the motivation for that? Every action is traced to its source. What's the source of her motivation? There's one individual in the room who has taken her heart captive, She's absorbed with his presence. And it's not Simon. It's not her brother Lazarus. It's none of the disciples. She passes them all by. And yet she does this for the king. Why? Because she's seen what he's done in the life of other individuals. Jesus alone fills her soul. He captivates her attention. Her eyes are right on him. Now, let's stop right there and think of Jesus. He's reclining at the table. He's there for a party. He's celebrating with people. And all of a sudden, oh my goodness, the liquid's pouring down over his head, roaring down through his hair. It's running down his back, spilling onto his clothing. And then that's not enough. She runs right down to his feet. Now, a Roman pound is a liquid unit of measure. It's not a solid item like you might think of a pound of butter. I'm going to help you understand what's going on here because I happen to bring a litre with me. This is a pretty close measurement of a litre of fluid. Let's picture how long this took for her to do this. Imagine the silence in the house at this time. I don't know how much perfume you put on in the morning. I know that I've sprayed cologne and aftershave, just one or two sprays, and my wife says that's enough. It's a little overpowering. Can you imagine that much of the most fragrant perfume in the world? 
being dumped out on your entire body to the degree that John says, the house was filled with the fragrance of this. That's a vivid detail of an eyewitness account. You've got an individual who was right there in the room and watched this unfold. And he said, the aroma was magnificent. As a matter of fact, it drowned out all the smell of the lamb chops. We were there for a party. There's steaks on the grill, and you can't smell anything. It's not just the room. The whole house is filled. All of those people who were gathered outside looking in the window, those who were on the rooftop trying to see this dead guy and Jesus. Oh, what's that smell? The house is filled with the fragrance. A beautiful gift given with joy and with love will do that. When Lori and I were dating, we used to exchange Cracker Jack boxes. It was one of the favorite snacks for us. I don't know if they still put surprise toys down inside the box, but it was a cheap snack that you could get. We got it when we went on the road. And when we were dating, we'd always dive in the box trying to find out who got the best toy surprise that was inside. And sometimes Lori would get those fake plastic rings, and we weren't engaged at this point. She'd grab one of those plastic rings and slide it on her finger and say, now you can marry me, you have no excuses, because we couldn't afford a ring at the time. And so when it came time for me to propose to her when we were going to get engaged, um, I had not told anyone what I was doing, but I steamed open a box of Cracker Jacks, and I pulled out the toy that was inside, and I steamed that open, removed the toy, and I slid her ring inside there, sealed it shut again, and put all the Cracker Jacks back, and then sealed the box shut. She couldn't tell. She didn't know. And I had told her family that we were going to get engaged that weekend, that I was going to propose. So I drove all the way down to Indiana, where she was living with her parents, and I told them what I was going to do, and we went out to dinner. And after dinner, I was going to propose. So her family left the restaurant, We went out to our car and we drove to a park and my timing wasn't the best because I said, hey, would you like a snack, you know, and we just had lunch, you know, 22-year-old kid, wasn't thinking real great, but anyways, she was very gracious and she said, sure, why not, I'd like to see what the toy surprise is inside, so she ripped the thing open and she pulled it out, opened it up, she said, oh, look, it's one of these cheap rings again, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) till she felt the weight of it. And then the sunlight caught the tiny little diamond in there and it started glinting and then she realized and started screaming and the car was filled with the sound and the fragrance of the gift given in love permeated the environment. And then we went to her house and showed it to her parents and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the gift given in love. That's the setting going on here. Now, in an act that shocked all the onlookers, that she would dump out $27,000 worth of perfume on the king laying at the table, if that wasn't enough to silence the room, Mary did something next that caused them question. She let down her hair in public. A Jewish woman never lets down their hair in public. It's considered indecent. She lets down her hair in public, and not only she let down her hair in the setting, in the presence of all these men, she uses her hair to begin to scrub his feet. The most menial job ever given to any slave was to wash the feet of the guest of the house. 
Mary doesn't give a rip. She doesn't care. She's not concerned with shame whatsoever. She doesn't care what anyone thinks. To the degree that Jesus recognized how pure her heart was and the action that she took, that Jesus actually said what she just did will be spoken of for centuries. Look with me on the screen, Mark 14, 9. This will be spoken of as a memorial of her love wherever the gospel is preached. Here we are 2,000 years later and we're still talking about it. Was Jesus right? This is an incredible gift. Now, understand the room is silent. Everybody's understanding what's going on. But behind this beautiful bouquet of roses that's just been presented, there lurks a serpent. And the serpent is about to poke his head up through the rose bush. Look with me at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now the room is stunned silence. This young woman has taken her dowry and dumped it out on Jesus. She's let down her hair in public and she's washed his feet in public with her hair. And soon, the beautiful aroma in the room is penetrated by vile accusations. What a waste! Couldn't this money have been used for something better than that? What a disgrace! There's other more important needs. If we look at the passage in Mark, Mark 14, we're told that they rebuked her harshly. Look on the screen, Mark 14:4, And they rebuked her harshly. Last week when we were looking at the resurrection of Lazarus, we talked about Jesus being in the cemetery. And Jesus, at one point, was filled with anger. I taught you the word embryomai. It's the exact same word that's used here, harshly. It's the word that represented a horse with his nostrils flaring when he's being broken. That's how angry Judas is. What a waste. Was it wasted? Well, I'll let you determine that. Judas asked a good question. Why wouldn't it be sold and be used for the poor? Is he being genuine in his question? Well, understand there's always a spoiler present when a beautiful gift is given in love. And you're looking at the spoiler. Verse 6. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. If you look at verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, You see John as a 90-year-old man, still so consumed, so shocked by what Judas did to Jesus, that 70 years after the fact, he still can't help but associate Judas with his incredible acts of lying, murdering, thieving individual. That's what pops in his mind when he describes him. 90 years old, and he's still thinking about it. And as for Judas... Seeing that much money escape his grasp, it infuriates him and causes him to rage after her. So what does Jesus do in response? Jesus steps in and he sets the record straight and he restores sweetness to the room again. Go with me to verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. 
let her alone is spoken in the Greek language in the second person singular, meaning he said it directly to Judas. You let her alone. What do you see going on here? The shepherd is protecting his sheep. The shepherd is stepping up and defending his sheep. But his words unveil the stream of thought that even in a party, what's on his mind? My death is only a few days away. She's reserved this for a purpose. Matthew 26, Matthew gives us a better insight into this. Here's Jesus' words for this statement. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. See, in the first century, part of the expenses of a first century funeral were to buy spices and perfumes to anoint the body. So Jesus is speaking specifically his death. And so his response, Mark 14, 6, is she's done a beautiful thing. What she's done is extraordinary. Look at Mark 14, 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Now let's really focus in on Mark 14, 8. Take the first part of that section. She did what she could. Now, there is a statement in divergence. A statement in divergence, meaning the opposite of the things that Judas was just saying. And Jesus has said it with a huge exclamation point. She did what she could. Let's contrast it. How could Judas possibly understand? He doesn't have a heart for Jesus. That's why he's had the reaction. She has a heart for Jesus. She's a worshiper. He's a thief. She seeks to draw attention to Jesus. Judas wants to dispose of him. She gives a small fortune to Jesus. Judas sells him for 30 pieces of silver. What you're looking at here is the battle, the battle of wickedness in high places that Ephesians 6 talks about. We argue not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places, powers, principalities. So as Lucifer moves in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves in the heart of Mary to honor Jesus and pour out love for him. Do you ever personally wonder and struggle with the fact that maybe the things that you bring to the king are not good enough? Do you ever struggle with that yourself? Do you wonder... I wonder if what I'm bringing is good enough. When you look very closely at what Jesus said there in verse 8, she did what she could. And I'm not just talking about money, church. I'm talking about the tools that you have in your toolbox, the gifts that God gave you. Have you done what you could with the tools that He gave you? Have you brought your abilities to the King? That's a huge statement by Jesus to say, she did what she could. Look with me up on the screen at 2 Corinthians 8.12 as you check yourself to determine whether or not what you're doing is enough. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says this, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So that statement by Jesus begs a question. Have you done what you could? I have to ask myself that. Am I surrendering what I have to the king? Is it acceptable in his eyes? Is the willingness there? Now understand his statement, that you always have the poor with you. He's not disparaging the poor. 
He's just clarifying for the disciples, get your priorities in line. The, The poor will always be with you. You have a limited time to do things for the kingdom. And this is your opportunity. So if Judas was really concerned about the poor, he'd have a lifetime to serve them. He'd never lack for opportunity. So here's where we end today. Just a few more verses to go. Judas is standing at a crossroad. He's been unmasked as a hypocrite. Individuals are looking at him, pretending to care for the poor, while in reality, he's embezzling from God. Do you know that immediately after this action, that that's when Judas sold Jesus? Many people thought it was on Thursday night when he went to the the priest and said, I know where he's at. That's not what triggered it. This event triggered it. I'm going to show you up on the screen, Mark 14.10. This is immediately after the breaking of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. See, this is the event. Thursday night when Jesus is turned over and arrested, that's just when he collected the money. This is when he decided to do it because at this point, he made his decision. Jesus is not someone I want to belong to. So he recognized there is no gray area. It's either black or white. You're all in or all out. Judas made his choice. This is where it begins to wrap up. Verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, meaning Jesus, And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. They're a curious crowd. They want to see Jesus and the dead guy. I'd do the same thing. You would too. You want to go look in the window? I mean, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Human nature has not changed. Curiosity is a really powerful motivator. And that Jesus, such a controversial person, is within two miles of where these individuals are at. They find it's impossible for him to remain unnoticed. The whole Passover crowd hears that he's there, so they swell up towards Bethany. Verse 10 is the last verse we're going to look at today. This is where it ends. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So they got the living proof of the power of the King of Kings in front of him, in front of all of them. And they're unable to counter the evidence. So what are they going to do? Let's destroy the evidence. That's what will take care of it. And they're increasing this tangled web of deception because no one is neutral regarding Jesus Christ. You can't be neutral. That's why he said, he who's not with me is against me. Everyone takes a stand. And what they stand for determines where they will spend eternity. That's what Jesus promised us. Because what you believe about God determines what you do next. So you're either for Him or against Him. As I look at this text this morning, what I want to send you out with is I see three groups of people in this text. I'm going to ask you to identify this three groups with me and see if maybe you pick yourself out of one of those three categories. Probably everybody can identify with at least one of the three groups. The first one, and I put this in your notes as well, first group I see there are the onlookers. They're the spectators. 
They come and try and check things out from a distance. It's kind of safe to stand in the shadows. Eventually, you've got to get out of the shadows and get engaged. That's not a bad place to be in the beginning. But the individuals who are the onlookers find it's very safe looking in the window. Wonder what's going on. What are these people of faith about? Safe here. Nobody's going to ask me to do anything. But eventually, you've got to take the step in. The second group is the group that really kind of irritates me. And I think they irritate the king as well. Based on what we see in Scripture, the wannabes. And the wannabes are those armchair quarterbacks. They give you all the feedback as to how things should be done, but they never personally get engaged themselves. That's the group of disciples that were there just chastising Mary, giving her such a hard time. They're so harsh. You ever been in a group in a, in a room with a bunch of wannabe quarterbacks watching a football game? All the guys can tell you how the game should be played, what they should be doing, how they should execute their strategy. But when it really comes time to engaging and doing the work, they suddenly become really quiet. They back off. Jesus spoke to that group very clearly. Leave her alone. She's doing what she could. See, those individuals who are the wannabes, they tend to handcuff the church and they keep the kingdom from advancing. Smiling all the time, showing up at the party, having a great time participating to some degree, but really telling people how to do it, but never doing it themselves. And then there's this third group. Hopefully that's where you find yourself this morning, the participant. And that's Simon. He's the the leper that was touched by Jesus. He's been completely restored. That's Lazarus. He's in the tomb. Your life is completely over. You can hear the lid going down on the grave, and then you hear the voice of the Master calling you back, restoring life to you, forgiving you. And you're so enveloped by what he's done, you just don't really care about the risk. You want him as part of your life. I imagine when Mary poured out this incredibly expensive perfume on Jesus that Simon and Lazarus were just laughing to beat the band. They thought this is the greatest thing. They're bursting with joy. Or maybe lastly, you can identify with Mary. You've seen the work of Jesus in the life of individuals around you, and you just can't stand it. You've got to participate with the kingdom. You've got to give to the king. You've got to serve in some way because what you see God doing and changing life is so amazing, it just overwhelms you. I want you to note something about this passage. Mary was intentional about what she did for the kingdom. We know that this was not her home. This is the home of Simon. That means that she went to her home intentionally at some point, picked up that vase, and with deliberate action, carried it across the street, across the city, to wherever Simon lived, took it in the house, and was very deliberate about what she did. It was not a spontaneous action, but it was a generous action. So I ask yourself, as you look through that list, where did you end up? If you end up on that list at all. More importantly, where do you want to be? Where would you like to be? Do you note that whom Jesus honors? He honors the participant, the third one, the one who engages. Here's the last detail I'd like you to know about Nard before I let you go. Jesus has been stripped of all his clothing. It's five days later, and Mary's at the foot of a blood-soaked cross, a wooden instrument of death. 
devised by the Romans. We know that it's the most brutal form of execution developed by man. For that very reason, they wanted it to be brutal. Here's one thing you may not know about nard. Even a drop or two can still be smelled 10 days after it's deposited. So you find Jesus on the cross, stripped of his clothing, Mary and Mary and Mary and John and all the individuals gathered at the foot of the cross. And Jesus is stretched out. But he still has the hair that was soaked with the nard. And we're told, according to individuals who understand the crucifixion process, that every time someone wants to draw a breath who's on a cross, they have to raise themselves up on their toes to force their lungs to expand <gasps> so they can draw in a breath because crucifixion asphyxiates you. That's why they put the nail through the feet so it will hurt even more. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. His hair surrounds his face. <gasps> The most fragrant perfume in the world has soaked his hair six days earlier. Do you think that Mary thought that that was a waste? Do you think she wished she could take it back? Jesus said, what she did is a beautiful thing. She has prepared my body for the burial. Every breath he inhales takes in that fragrance. <gasps> See, what Mary did for the kingdom, like what you do for the kingdom, screams across the pages of time. That's why Jesus could say, people are going to be talking about this 2,000 years later on March 25th in Hazlitt, Michigan. Wherever the gospel is taught, this woman's story is going to be told because she advanced the kingdom with her giving. I'm going to ask God that He would seal this truth in our heart this morning. I'm going to ask you to pray with me because we've looked at some pretty intense passages of Scripture and it's something we don't want to forget. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now. Let's ask God that He'll seal this in our heart. Father, You promised that Your Word would never return void. We claim that, Father, and we believe that when Your Word is properly taught and the truth is delivered, that it will expand the kingdom. So God, I ask for every man, woman, student here today that You would take these truths and drive them deep into our heart, especially, Father, as we approach Easter. And we think of the price that You paid so that we can celebrate this life that we have. God, I ask that You help us to be willing to do what we can with the tools that we have, with what You've equipped us to do, not waiting for a future moment, but Father, rather to engage with You now and not hold anything back. God, I ask that You would seal these truths in us as we take on this day and this week ahead. I do ask specifically for our church that You bless each and every individual for taking this time to study Your Word and to look into these truths. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week, church.